The sermon text for today is Exodus 17, 8 through 16. The New Testament reading is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, and then Exodus 17, 8 through 16. First Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let us turn now to Exodus 17. We will read verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial. In a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. There are three points to the sermon today. One, Christian sojourners must engage in spiritual warfare. Two, Christians will find victory in warfare through persistent prayer. And three, the victory is ours because Jesus Christ has won it. We must be found trusting in him. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Pastor, you really had to stretch and strain to draw these three conclusions from this simple little text which tells us of a battle between Israel and Amalek at a place called Rephidim. And if that is your opinion, I'd have to disagree with you. In fact, I do think that this is the proper interpretation and application of this passage for the people of God living under the new covenant. 
What can we learn from this text? Not only, not only are we to learn a history lesson regarding the battle between the Israelites and Amalek. No, we must remember that these things happened to Israel as an example for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. That is an allusion there to 1 Corinthians 10.6 once again. And when we consider this little story in light of what happened before and what happened afterward in the history of redemption, it is clear that it has reference to Jesus Christ and the victory that he has won over the spiritual powers of darkness. This spiritual interpretation, this typological interpretation, is in perfect harmony with the example set forth in the New Testament. You've seen it throughout our study of the book of Exodus. I've tried to demonstrate this to you. The New Testament scriptures consistently look back upon the Old Testament scriptures in general and the Exodus story in particular, and they see Christ pictured there. The New Testament also sees in these historical events an example of the Christian life. So when I deliver these three points to you from Exodus 17, 8 through 16, Christian sojourners must engage in spiritual warfare. We will find our victory through persistent prayer. And the victory is ours because Jesus Christ has won it. We must be found trusting in Him. It is not at all a stretch. Here we are simply being sensitive to the way in which Christ and the Christian life are prefigured in the Old Testament and of the progression that has been made in the accomplishment of our redemption from the days of Moses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. As we consider our passage for today, we are indeed reminded that Christian sojourners must engage in spiritual warfare. Granted, the warfare that Israel engaged in was physical warfare. It was fought with swords and with spears. Flesh was pierced, blood was spilled, many perished. But behind this physical war between Amalek and Israel, there was a spiritual war. And we must never forget that. And we will likely forget the spiritual war if we read this story with our noses pressed to the page. But if we back up just a little bit to gain perspective, we will remember that a spiritual conflict lies behind all physical conflict, especially the conflict between God's chosen people and those who belong to the evil one. Consider this, when Satan tempted Adam, he did so in the physical realm and with physical things, but the temptation was really spiritual, wasn't it? It had to do with the question, would the man be loyal to God or would he rebel and transfer his allegiance to another? We know that Adam rejected God's word when he listened to the voice of the serpent. The temptation and the fall took place in the physical realm, but the battle was really spiritual, wasn't it? It was a spiritual battle that took place within the heart and mind of man. As you know, God was merciful to this rebel. He promised to provide salvation for mankind. And when he spoke of the coming Savior, he directed the announce- this announcement at Satan, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I sometimes wonder if that is not the text I quote most in all of Scripture right there that first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. But it was the Lord speaking to the serpent, saying, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. You will strike at the heel of her offspring, but he will crush your head. Uh, That's my 
summary of what the Lord said to the serpent. It was good news. It was declared to the serpent, but in the hearing of Adam and in the hearing of Eve, it was not good news for the serpent, but it was good news for the man and for the woman, these rebels. God promised to provide a savior. A victory would be won by this savior. The work that the evil one did to, to draw man into sin and rebellion would be overcome by this Messiah, by this Christ, by this anointed one of God, this Savior. We see that this good news was like a small seed of hope, but in the course of time it would sprout up and grow into a great and mighty tree, a tree in which the birds of the air could find their rest. I'm here thinking of Matthew 13 and the way that Christ spoke about the advancement of his kingdom. This little, this little promise of the gospel was so small at first. It was rather vague, but it was good news. There was hope here, and, and in the course of time, that little seed of good news would sprout forth and become something so very significant. And we must remember that as we consider these little stories, even in the book of Exodus. As we consider the scriptures from the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3 on through the Exodus What do we notice about the fulfillment of this promise regarding the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? What do we notice? How was this fulfilled? It it does not take long to see that these words, again, were not about the hostility between men and snakes. Instead, the promise was about the hostility that would exist between those aligned with the evil one and those who belonged to the Lord. That's what this was about. There would be perpetual hostility between those who belong to the evil one and between those who belong with them and, and, and those who belong to the Lord by his grace. We must remember how the wicked man Cain rose up and killed his righteous brother Abel. You remember that story? There's an immediate fulfillment to that Genesis 3.15 passage and the promise of the gospel there. There's hostility between Adam and Eve's children. Uh, the wicked one Cain rises up and kills the righteous one Abel. Remember how Noah was a righteous man tormented by the wicked around him. Remember how of Noah's three sons, Shem was blessed of the Lord. Japheth would take refuge in him, but Ham was cursed. From these men, all the peoples of the earth would descend. Abraham, we know, was a descendant of the blessed one, Shem. And of Abraham's two sons, Isaac was chosen. And of Isaac's two sons, Jacob was loved, but Esau was hated. And you know that the two were at enmity with each other, even from the womb. Do you remember that story? Those two wrestled in the womb of their mother, Jacob and Esau did. And so my point is this. When God promised that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, this is what he meant. In the world, there would be those who belonged to the evil one, and, there would, and these would strike continuously those who belonged to God in the world. Uh, brothers and sisters... This man, Amalek, who was introduced to us so abruptly in Exodus 17.8, was a direct descendant of Esau. He was a direct descendant of Esau. And we know that the Hebrews were descendants of Jacob, God's chosen one, God's blessed one. And so we must think about that for a moment. What is going on here in this little battle that took place between Amalek and in the Hebrews, immediately after their exodus from Egypt. Uh, What is going on here? Is this just another uh, historical battle, you know, fought in in the world? Is this just a a mere historical note that is being brought to our attention? 
in the Exodus story. No, I think something far more is, is going on here. We see that this is yet another fulfillment of that first promise of the gospel uttered in Genesis 3.15, that there is hostility between God's people in the world and the people who belong to the evil one. I'm saying that we cannot lose touch with the storyline of Genesis and Exodus if we hope to understand the meaning of these small little individual texts. Yes, the battle that was fought between Israel and the clan of Amalek was physical, Flesh was pierced, blood was spilled. But when all is considered, we see that a battle is raging in the background and it is spiritual. Again, this is yet another fulfillment of what was said by God in Genesis 3.15. In the course of history, the seed of Satan would strike repeatedly at the heel of God's people. This time it was Amalek, but in due time one would arise from the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, bringing ultimate victory to God and his people. This was the work of Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. So Israel's battle with Amalek was physical, but it was also spiritual. And this is clear not only from the context of Genesis, but from the text itself. We see that Israel experienced victory, not because they were militarily superior, but only when Moses, the man of God, interceded for them. You can see that there's something more to this story than just an ordinary battle between two peoples. Uh, This is a spiritual battle as Moses, the man of God, God's prophet, as he ascended the hill and lifted his arms to heaven, God gave victory to Joshua and to the Hebrews. And so this was no ordinary battle. The battle belonged to the Lord And this is what was emphasized at the conclusion of our text where Moses builds an altar to give thanks to God for the victory. And he calls it, the Lord is my banner. The point is this, Israel trusted in the Lord and it was the Lord who won the battle for Israel. And I do suppose this is true of all battles. It is the Lord who brings victory and defeat according to his will. But it is especially true of the wars of Israel. It is especially true of the wars of Israel. For God's purpose was to accomplish our redemption through them. This little battle with Amalek would be the first of many battles fought by the people of Israel. And as I've said, all of Israel's divinely sanctioned wars under the old covenant were special. They were unique. For God was accomplishing our redemption through them. His will was to free this people from Egypt His will was to give this people Canaan to bless them with kings, to preserve them in the land until the Christ was brought into the world through them. There is something unique going on here. This is not just ordinary providence. This is God working out our redemption, God fulfilling this promise to bring the Messiah into the world. So when we consider what God was doing in and through Israel, we must keep in mind that we are are considering unique and special history, aren't we? We are considering redemptive history, not ordinary history. Israel would fight many wars according to the command of God. Real wars, physical wars where blood was shed. But do not forget the spiritual battle, friends, that is behind it all. Do not forget the real battle that is being fought, that is the battle between God and Satan himself. These wars of Israel, though fought on earth, had to do with that promise of the gospel that was made to Adam and to Eve in God's curse of the serpent. 
Now that the Christ has come into the world through the nation of Israel, God's people are no longer called to fight for the advancement of God's kingdom with the sword. Those days are long gone. They passed away with the Old Covenant. When Old Covenant Israel fought with the sword, they did, in a sense, further God's kingdom. God's God's kingdom was, under the Old Covenant, manifest on earth through them. As Israel fought in the wilderness at the time of the conquest of Canaan, and in the days of the judges and in the days of the kings, they, in a way, fought for the advancement of God's kingdom on earth. And I have said, in a way and in a sense, for we know that the kingdom of God was not present in power until the time of Christ, for it was Christ and his forerunner who said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are you following with me here? When did God's kingdom come in power? At the time of Christ, through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God was prefigured in Israel. And it would be through Israel that the Messiah would emerge to bring in the kingdom of God with power. And this is why I have said, when Old Covenant Israel fought with the sword, they did, in a sense, further God's kingdom. These wars were holy wars, for God commanded them. They were fought not for personal enrichment, nor for the expansion of borders, but for the advancement of God's plan of redemption. You see then why these are called holy wars. They, they were wars fought by the command of God. They were wars fought not for the personal enrichment of those involved, nor for the advancement of borders or for mere earthly kingdoms. No, these were holy wars. They were commanded by God And they were therefore governed by special rules. No other nation on earth has fought wars such as these. Some have claimed to do so. Some have claimed that they are fighting holy wars. But in truth, no other nation on earth has fought wars such as these. These wars were unique to Old Covenant Israel. And that is why I have said that God's people are no longer called to fight for the advancement of God's kingdom with the sword. Those days are long gone. Why? The Christ has come. The mission has been accomplished. God has brought the Messiah into the world through Israel, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. This is why Jesus spoke to the Roman ruler, Pilate, saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And this statement that Jesus made is very significant, especially as we consider it in light of everything that had happened previously in the nation of Israel. Uh, That nation was earthly in very significant ways. Yes, spiritual in some ways too, but earthly. And how was that nation established and maintained except with use of the sword? And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not that. It's not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting but my kingdom is not from the world. The kingdom of Old Covenant Israel was of this world, friends. It was physical, it was earthly, and its wars were fought with physical weapons. But when Christ came to inaugurate his kingdom, he said, in so many words, those days are over. Yes, the kingdom of God was prefigured in Old Covenant Israel. And yes, God's kingdom purposes were advanced in and through them. But it was Christ who brought the kingdom of God in with power. And what did he say about it? Again, my kingdom is not of this world 
My servants will not be fighting, therefore. My kingdom is not from this world. And this is why he told Peter to put his sword back in its sheath when he began to fight against those who came to take Jesus captive to crucify him. Do you remember that event? After Jesus there prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his betrayal, the day, night before his crucifixion, uh, the, the soldiers come to take Jesus captive. And what does Peter do? With all of his zeal, he, he pulls the sword from his sheath and strikes at uh, one of the servants there and cuts off his ear. And Christ says, put it away. Put it away. In other words, those days are over. This kingdom that I have come to establish isn't like the old one. It isn't like old covenant Israel. This is a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, one that will be manifest on earth, yes, but it's not going to be advanced in that way, not with the sword, but only by the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was what Christ said to, uh, to, to Peter. And we must pay careful attention to that. Peter had to learn the lesson that the days of fighting for the advancement of God's kingdom with the sword were over. Again, they concluded with the passing away of the old covenant and with the inauguration of the new. Uh, perhaps an argument could even be made that they ended, in a sense, in the days of King David, for in his reign the kingdom of Israel was made secure. Uh, future kings would be responsible not to advance or to expand Israel's borders, uh, but to defend them instead. Certainly the tie between the kingdom of God on earth and the nation of Israel was severed when Christ died and rose again and inaugurated the new covenant by his shed blood. So here's my question. If it is true that the days of advancing God's kingdom with the sword are over, does that mean God's people may rest from all warfare? May we rest now from all warfare? And the answer is certainly not. A battle is still raging. Though it is often invisible, it is as fierce as ever. And Christian sojourners must engage in warfare. It is spiritual, brothers and sisters. This is why Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That is 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 16. What is Paul saying? Brothers and sisters, there is still a battle raging all around us. It's not fleshly, though. It is spiritual. The weapons are different, therefore, not swords and spears, but even uh, the argumentation brought from the truth of God's word is used in this fight. In another place, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, what is Paul's point here in this passage except to say there is a spiritual battle that is raging all about us and you had be, better be dressed for warfare. You had better be prepared to engage 
in the fight. Christ's kingdom is not earthly. Yes, his kingdom is manifest on earth. It is visible wherever Christians assemble in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to hear his word and to keep his ordinances. In other words, Christ's kingdom is manifest or made visible on earth in the church. Here it is right before you. Here is a little sampling of the kingdom of Christ on earth. You have assembled together on this Lord's day uh, to say Jesus is Lord. Yet again, we are his people. We are his citizens. We are his soldiers. It is manifest on earth in the church, but his kingdom is of heaven, not earth. It is spiritual, not physical. It is advanced not with the sword, but by the word of God and the spirit. It is preserved and protected, not with earthly warfare, but but through spiritual warfare. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you fighting? Are you fighting? Or have you forgotten that there is a battle raging? Have you grown complacent, in other words? Are you dressed for the battle, brothers and sisters? Have you prepared yourself with the armor of God, or have you let your guard down? In the age to come, there will be no warfare, only rest. But this age is characterized by spiritual battle and worldly tribulation. Rest in the Lord, but do not grow complacent in Him. Know for certain that if you are going to stand in Christ, and if you will be used for the advancement and preservation of His kingdom on earth, you will have to wage spiritual warfare. Daily, you must take up the whole armor of God. You must fasten on the belt of truth. You must put on the breastplate of righteousness. You must have as shoes for your feet the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You must take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And how, and how do we clothe ourselves with this armor from God? How do we put it on? I mean, if it were physical armor, you would say we do it with our hands, you know. We take time and we, 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 we pick it up and we place it on our bodies and we fasten all of the belts in order to be sure that all of this armor is secure upon us. But how do we... How do we clothe ourselves with this armor from God, this spiritual armor? The answer is, is, it is through prayer. It is through prayer. The Christian must pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, the Apostle says. So are you ready for battle, brothers and sisters? Are you clothing yourselves with the armor of God daily through persistent prayer? That brings us now to the second point of the sermon for today, which is this. Christians will find victory through persistent prayer. And now we return to the text of Exodus 17. And as we do, I want you to notice that Joshua is introduced to us out of the blue. Joshua will play a very important role in Israel's history. From other texts, we know that he was much younger than Moses. He was Moses' right-hand man. He was a mighty warrior and a skilled military commander. He was one of the two spies who kept the faith when the twelve were sent to spy out the land of Canaan. Here I am assuming you know the narrative and you can look to the future a little bit here in the storyline. Remember they come to the borders of Canaan and some are sent out, twelve, to see if they can have the victory. Joshua is one of the twelve who has faith and says, yes, we can do it for the Lord is with us. He would eventually succeed Moses as the leader of Israel and would after 40 years of wilderness wandering lead them into the promised land. And so Joshua is a very important figure. And he's introduced to us very abruptly in verse 8. 
where he is set forth as a contrast to the evil one, Amalek. You have Amalek and you have Joshua. And so it is Jacob versus Esau in the history of redemption. It is Joshua versus Amalek. And all of this does anticipate the conflict that would one day come to a head between Jesus, the blessed seed of the woman, and Satan, that serpent of old. We know from other texts that Amalek was a descendant of Esau. He was the head of his tribe. His descendants would become the Amalekites. They would be mortal enemies of Israel from this day forward. And as such, we see here in this passage that they were devoted to destruction because of what they did to Israel as they languished there in the wilderness. Other texts like Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 1 Samuel 15, 2 help us to understand that Amalek was ruthless when he attacked Israel. He attacked them when they were weak and struggling in the wilderness. He attacked them from behind, meaning that he targeted not the military, but the women and children along with those who were lagging behind. And we do know that the Amalekites were raiders who were strong militarily. Israel, by contrast, was at this time very weak. They were poorly armed. They were inexperienced in warfare. And all of this becomes evident as the story unfolds. So Amalek did a very ruthless thing in trying to take advantage of Israel in this moment of weakness. We see here that Joshua had one day to summon his troops. It's likely that some training had taken place before this. Perhaps the Hebrews left Egypt with some weapons or perhaps they fashioned some for themselves while in the wilderness. But clearly they were outmatched. The natural result would have been defeat for Israel. Left to themselves, apart from the intervention of God, Israel would have surely been annihilated, blotted out from the face of the earth by Amalek and his mighty men. How then did Israel experience victory? How did they come to have the victory? The story is so very clear. It was by the power of God worked through the faithful intercession of Moses. This is a beautiful story. The, the imagery here is so rich and vivid. How did Israel come to have the victory? By the power of God worked through the faithful intercession of Moses. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. That was the natural response, of course. But here is the spiritual and faithful response. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so here's the game plan. Here's the... Here's the strategy. Joshua, you will go down and fight and I will go up on the hill to intercede, to plead with God that he would give you the victory and together they would have the victory. Moses was a servant of the Lord. He was God's prophet and priest. The staff of his had been used by God to work miracles in the past. It came to signify God's presence and God's power. So when Moses said, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand, the meaning was clear. Joshua would go down and fight with a sword, while Moses would go up to fight through intercessory prayer. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that the text does not say that Moses prayed. Nowhere is that stated explicitly in this text. Nor is any prayer of Moses recorded for us here or elsewhere uh, concerning this, this moment. And so some might criticize me then for drawing this application from the text saying uh, Christians will find victory through persistent prayer. But I do think the application is in fact valid. Uh, granted, the text does not say explicitly that Moses prayed, but it seems quite clear that this is what he was doing. Joshua went down to fight and Moses went up 
to intercede. He took the staff with him, which signified God's power and presence. He lifted up his arms to heaven, which is a common posture for prayer. And there he remained all day long. When his arms fell, Israel was defeated. When his arms were lifted up, Israel was victorious. In other words, Moses ascended the mountain, as it were, to come into God's presence to maintain a posture of dependence upon God on behalf of Israel. Did Moses utter anything with his lips? Um, And if he did, what what did he say? The, the, The scriptures are silent about this. But I am saying that his actions and his posture, they spoke volumes. By his actions and by his posture, Moses said, Lord, have mercy upon Israel. Strengthen Joshua. Strengthen the men who fight with him so that they might have the victory over the evil one for the sake of the advancement of your kingdom and for the glory of your name. Did he say this with his lips? The scriptures do not say, but I am am saying to you that by his actions and by the posture he took, he was pleading with the Lord to give Israel the victory in this moment. And what is prayer? Our catechism says that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit, for things agreeable to His will, in the name of Christ, believing with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. I love that answer. What is prayer? There it is, Baptist Catechism 105. But to pray is to take a posture of dependence before God, to state it another way. To pray is to, to come before God and to take a posture of dependence before Him. And that is what Moses did. And as he maintained that posture, Israel experienced victory, And I'm saying that the same is true in spiritual battle. The war is fought and the war is won through prayer. Pay careful attention to how Paul speaks of prayer in that passage that I read not long ago about the spiritual armor of God. Prayer in that passage is not listed as a piece of spiritual armor, as if it is set alongside the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, etc. It is not listed as a piece of spiritual armor. Rather, prayer in that passage is presented as the means by which all of this armor is taken up and put on and eventually wielded. Paul lists our spiritual armor and then he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. In other words, We are to take up and wield the sword of the Spirit in prayer. We are to put on the helmet of salvation in prayer. Prayer is to permeate all of this spiritual warfare of ours, including girding ourselves for battle. Christian sojourners must engage in spiritual warfare, and they must fight as Moses and Joshua did by maintaining a posture of perpetual dependence upon the Lord. This posture of dependence must come from the heart, and it is expressed through prayer. I do truly love the symbolism of this story, brothers and sisters. The truths that are communicated in this narrative are obvious. They're powerful. And to get at this, I'll ask you the same question I've asked before regarding the water and the manna that was provided for Israel in the wilderness. If you remember, I asked concerning those instances, why this way? Why this way? Why did God give Israel the water they needed like this by turning the bitter water sweet miraculously and by telling Moses to, to, to strike the rock, this, this rock, and then a spring of water flows out. Why this way? Why not feed them in another way? Why the manna from heaven? 
And if you remember in sermons past, I've emphasized that the Lord fed Israel and, and satisfied their thirst in this way so as to demonstrate beyond shadow of doubt that this was provision from God, that God was powerfully present with his people to provide for them. And here I wish to say that the same is true concerning this battle. Why this way? Could not have God given Israel victory or at least protection from, uh, from the Amalekites um, in another way? Could he not have led Israel in a different direction so that they would not be threatened by this ruthless man and his clan? Uh, could he have provided uh, allies for Israel in the wilderness so that Amalek wouldn't have even thought to attack them because of Israel's powerful friends? Could the Lord not have prepared Israel more thoroughly for warfare so that they would be naturally strong to ward off uh, the enemy and, and to defeat him by their own strength? I suppose we could say, yes, the Lord could have done it this way instead. He could have protected Israel by more natural means. Why this way, therefore, with Joshua going down to the battle with a ragtag group of soldiers and Moses going up onto the mountain to pray? And not only does he go up on the mountain to pray, but all of Israel witnessed this. As his arms were lifted up, Israel had victory. As they drooped down, Amalek had victory, and Israel was defeated. What is going on here except that the Lord is saying to Israel and through them, through their experience, to all of us, that there is a war to be fought, and this war is going to be won by the strength of the Lord. We must depend upon Him. It's going to be won as we implore Him to, to fight the battle for us and to strengthen us for the battle. Uh, that is why this victory was given to Israel in this way, to prove that the Lord was present with Israel, that He was committed to provide for them, and that He had the power to save. And in this way, Israel and we through them would learn to trust the Lord Evermore, And in this way, God would also be glorified. Who won this battle? The Lord did. The Lord won this battle. The Lord provided victory for Joshua and his men and for all of Israel. God gets the glory through uh, these means. I want for you to notice a few things about this story. One, Moses went up on the mountain and lifted the staff of God toward the throne of God in heaven. Clearly, Moses was petitioning the Lord for assistance in this time of great need. And brothers and sisters, we must learn to run to the Lord in faithful prayer always, but especially in times of trouble. Natural men and women will run only to the battle, or perhaps away from it, but spiritual men and women will run to the battle covered in prayer. Two, it is emphasized that Moses' arms soon grew weak and tired, we must acknowledge that anyone's would. Yes, Moses was advanced in age here, but we know that he passed from this world a strong man, the scriptures say. He was not weak and frail at this moment or later. Anyone's arms would have drooped if you try to hold them up to heaven all the day long. But in this we see that Israel got the victory, not because Moses was strong, but because the Lord God of heaven is strong. Can you see the point being made in this passage? Uh, it is not Moses' strength that brought victory, but the strength of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, our trust must not be in weak and fallible men, but in God. As great as Moses was, the victory was not found in him, but in the Lord. And so do not put your trust, brothers and sisters, in weak 
infallible men. Put your trust in the Lord. Three, others recognized that the battle belonged to the Lord, and so they joined with Moses to support him in his work of intercession. A rock was placed under Moses so that he could sit, while Aaron the priest, who was Moses' brother, and Hur, who was perhaps the husband of Miriam, and therefore Moses' brother-in-law, they came and they supported the arms of Moses so they would not fall. Can you picture it now? Moses there with his arms lifted to heaven. He's now seated on a rock. And, and you have Aaron on the one side and you have her on the other. And they're lifting Moses' arms up so that they do not droop. And here is an application for the people of God today. Uh, brothers and sisters, we must pray together. Do not neglect private prayer. Do not neglect corporate prayer either. Indeed, all of Israel was taught to trust the Lord in this episode, for they witnessed their leaders labor in prayer together. Uh, certainly, they themselves did also lift their eyes and their hearts to the God of heaven with them. And so I am saying, brothers and sisters, do not neglect corporate prayer. Gather with the church to pray. There is something powerful that happens when we do this. Our hearts are knit together through corporate prayer. But I do believe that God is truly honored when His people petition Him corporately in this way. And so pray with the congregation on the Lord's Day morning and evening. Pray in small groups. Pray as families. Do not only pray alone. For when Moses' arms drooped with fatigue, the battle was lost. And when they were raised up again, the battle was won. And this was to show that it was truly the Lord who fought for Israel. Moses was weak, but the Lord was strong. And brothers and sisters, I wonder if the Lord does not sometimes allow us to experience setbacks and defeats when we rely not on Him, but in ourselves. And it seems to me that He sometimes blesses us with answered prayer to show that He hears us and that He is present and powerful to provide and to protect us. Are you following with me there? From time to time, we will experience setbacks and defeats and disappointments in life. And I just wonder if the Lord is not refining us through them. I know that He is, in fact. I say, I wonder. I know that He does this. Sometimes He allows us to struggle in life and to experience setbacks and defeats in order to, to draw us more closely to Him so that we will take up that posture of dependence again and even more deeply than we had before. Five, Moses, uh, with the support of Aaron and Hur was persistent in his intercession for Israel. He sat and he lifted his arms to heaven all the day long until Israel had the victory. And brothers and sisters, I ask you, will you be persistent in prayer? Or will you cease from prayer when you grow weary or when it seems as if the battle has been lost? Pray without ceasing is what 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says. This does not mean that we are to do nothing but pray. Instead, it means that we are, as God's people, to pray continuously, not only in times of private prayer and corporate prayer, but throughout the day and from day to day, from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. The Christian sojourner must be clothed with prayer, for it is through persistent and faithful prayer that the battle will be won. The last point of the sermon is this. The victory is ours because Jesus Christ has won it we must be found trusting in him. The conclusion of our passage for today says, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, 
and a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I've already said that the Amalekites would be enemies of Israel from this day forward. And here we see that they were devoted to destruction by the Lord. A vow was taken concerning this. That is what the words, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation means. The portion of the text that I wish to draw your attention to is this. Notice that a memorial was constructed by Moses to celebrate the victory. He built an altar. We know that altars were for worship, and it was only right that the Lord be praised for the victory that he had worked for the Hebrews on that day. But notice the name of the altar. Moses named it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. What a beautiful name this is. What a beautiful memorial to the Lord's faithfulness. You should know that armies in those days would would raise tall banners into the air to signal where the soldiers should rally for safety and for planning as the battle developed. You and I, we have modern day forms of communication, radios and phones and the rest. Uh, But in those days, there were no such tools available to these armies. And so what would they do except raise tall banners up into the air so that the soldiers who were there on the front lines, perhaps, or, or scattered about, would know that they were to rally to this point for either protection or planning for victory in the battle. Here, Moses raises this banner. He says, the Lord is is my banner. Because in this battle, Moses and Joshua, they rallied around whom? They rallied around the Lord himself. The Lord himself was the banner for Israel. All of the nation rallied around the Lord as Moses was up on the hill lifting his arms to heaven interceding on behalf of the people. The Lord was their strength. The Lord was the one around whom uh, the soldiers of Israel rallied and trusted in for, for strength. As it pertains to the spiritual battle that rages around us continuously, the Lord has raised a banner for us and I am saying to you that it is Christ the Lord. It is Christ the Lord. He is our banner. He is the banner that has been raised for us and we must rally around Him and be found in Him if we hope to have the victory. Listen to the way that Christ spoke of His crucifixion. It was coming soon and He's meeting with His disciples and He's continuing to minister to them. He's preparing them for His crucifixion. He said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, he says. Uh, Think of the imagery there. Uh, Christ knew that he was about to go to the cross. He knew that he was about to defeat the ruler of the world, a, a reference to Satan himself. He was about to win the victory over him. And he talks about being lifted up from the earth and drawing all people to himself as he is lifted up as our banner. The Lord is our banner, brothers and sisters. And what is the banner that has been raised up except the Son of Man on the cross, crucified, not for His own sins, but for the sins of His people? He was lifted up unto death. He was buried in the grave. On the third day, He rose in victory. And what was the victory that He won? He did not conquer Amalek, as the first Joshua did. No, Christ Jesus the Lord, the second Joshua, conquered the evil one Himself, through whom the plague of sin was brought into the world. When we say the Lord is my banner, this is what we mean. 
Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the second Joshua, the one greater than Moses, is our banner. For he is the Lord incarnate who was lifted up from the earth for us. He has won the victory and we must run to him and be found in him by faith. Friends, have you run to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? Have you placed your faith in him? For this is the only way to be saved. He is the one that was spoken of as God cursed the serpent in the hearing of Adam and Eve. He is the seed of the woman, the promised one, the Messiah. He is the descendant of Abraham. He is the point of the old covenant Israel. Through them, this one would come into the world to earn victory for us, not victory over some nation, not victory over some earthly foe, but victory over the evil one himself so that we might have life eternal in him. Have you run to Jesus, our banner, for the forgiveness of sins? Listen to the words of Jesus in John three thirteen through 18. He said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, we'll come to that episode soon in our study of the book of Exodus, but picture the imagery here, please. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is our banner, friends. We must run to Him and be found in Him, for in Him the victory has been won. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, help us to sojourn well in this world as your people. We thank you that you have redeemed us from bondage. We thank you that you have provided for our every need in Christ Jesus. Help us to prepare ourselves to fight, O God. Make us ever more aware of the spiritual battle that rages around us. I pray that you would uh, make it unthinkable to us that we would uh, start the day without being clothed with this spiritual armor that you have provided for us. Oh, Lord, help us to be so aware of the spiritual battle that rages that we prepare ourselves daily through prayer and by your word of the word that you have given to us by the Spirit. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us the victory. Give us victory personally over temptation, over sin. Give us victory corporately. And we pray, God, that your kingdom would advance on earth. Father, do help us to be mindful of this mission that you have given to us always to preach the gospel to all nations, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize and to teach those who believe to observe all that you have commanded us. Oh Lord, help us to be faithful in this work and we do pray that your kingdom would advance here on earth, that your church would be built up strong and true. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that Christ has promised that he will build his church. We say, let it be so, O God, and use us in this work. Our desire, O Lord, is that you would come quickly. We long for the new heavens and new earth where there is perfect and eternal rest. Our hope is in Christ Jesus the Lord. In his name we pray.